<laughs> there we go. There it is. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not some big ideas. Profound things will be said. But entirely by accident. So we talked a lot before I even started hitting record. Oh, yeah. We should have a choir do that. Do you think there's an acapella version we could do this? So so we've already got all the talking out of our system because we've just been done. No more to talk about. All right. Nothing more to talk about. That was quite an episode. Yeah, it was good stuff. So I wish you all could have heard it. It Yeah, it's some of it. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> you may be glad you didn't. That was probably the most profoundest accidental things we've ever said were said in the last 20 minutes. And it will have to remain a mystery until I, just take our word for it, though. It was in, yeah. incredibly profound. You know, we should put a podcast out just like this and put it up there and say, please share, like, and uh, rate. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, that was just a great intro. Glad you didn't have anything else to say. <laughs> Yeah, here we are. Okay, we so it's been a little while since Craig and I actually been able to sit down and talk. The minutia of life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How how big does something need to be so it's no longer minutia? That's right. I guess it's literally not the minutia because the minutia is just your everyday stuff, and these were things that were not everyday. You know, but it's also a matter of perspective. I mean, so you're a pastor and right. you do a funeral. Is yeah. is a that's, funeral minutia in a pastor's? And that's not to know, downplay, right? No, you don't but mean it's just part, insignificant. But just yeah, but it's just part of the pattern of the things you do. It's part of what right. you're there for, right? That's exactly exactly exactly. But it, but it is one of the most significant moments in someone's life. So it's in, in, in some yeah. ways it's hard to go. Okay, this is this is a detail that I need to work through, and I you know, and you've got the tools to work it. So you've got you know, service to provide, you have a space to, you know, to, to make welcoming, you have a liturgy to, to outline, you have all those remarks and that that's part of the job. That's what you've got. That's right. right. That's right. But it's also got to be so personal and meaningful for the people who are there. And that's can't where lose, it's no longer minutia. That's right. Can't lose that in oh. the minutia of it. that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> I'd, in, in some ways, when those moments happen, I don't know if you feel this way. I don't really relish the thought of doing, you know, kind of a crisis visitation or, no. or, you know, emergency room hospital visit or right. even funerals. Not but there's fan. something inside that kind of like flips a switch and I go, this is what I'm here for. That's why I'm here. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And and just yeah. lean into it. Yeah. Yep. 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 Oh yeah. You just described perfectly kind of my mindset. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That is good. It is good. All right. So <clears throat> what are we going to talk so, about in the lead up to you? I think you got an interview with Colin Saxton. Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, I almost said Sexton. 
Oh, well, you know, as a, as a minister, I'm sure that he would be, you know, he's Forgiving. probably done some <laughs> sexton duties before. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, okay. So ecclesiologically, yes. what is a sexton? I have never gone into what is the difference. Why is there, so, what makes a, a, a sexton? Yeah, so, so I was, when I was in seminary, one of the jobs I oh, had was working at, a, at an Episcopal like church. Like a sergeant of arms given, almost, right? Right. Well, I well as a as a seminary student i was given the job title at this episcopal church episcopalian church mm-hmm. um as the church sexton yes that's where i've heard it the most here is episcopalians somebody is the sexton but but you you know what my job description was i what? mean put out the bulletins on, no <laughs> on on uh sweep the doorstep friday night i had to go vacuum the church empty out all the trash make sure the bathrooms were clean and stocked you know and and i didn't have to do any mowing or no i take that back i did have to do mowing in the summer i did mowing and trimming outside there you go okay Um, and that i was called a sexton and now i had read other places that a church sexton sexton was responsible for the graveyard yes maintaining grave sure and i I never did that. Did do so, you have one at that church? Was there a, a graveyard? Oh, probably. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember anymore. It's so long ago, but oh, wow. just about every church back east, you know, these old churches, sure. these old stone buildings that have been around for a few hundred years, they usually have a graveyard. Um, wow. And so there probably was one, but I don't remember having any responsibility to. How did that become? That. As we moved farther west, how did that become detached from the 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 graveyards? Yeah. You know, I think it probably has something to do with more moving from a rural to a urban, yeah, uh, landscape. Because you know, if if you're in suburbia or even an urban environment, it's not likely that you're going to have, you know, a shoe store, a church, a bakery, a cemetery, you know, a tailor, and then a I don't know. It's just like oh, we don't want dead people on our in our business district. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I'm. Doesn't Portland has something right down, don't they? Well, a, a lot of the, a lot of older cities do have downtown. They do. Back when they were small, small cities, I guess. So yeah. the, the first Mennonite church in the United States is Germantown Mennonite Church in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And right beside the church there, this old stone building, That's right. there is a, a cemetery with... You know, headstones for people who were born at, well, let's see, I'm trying to think what the oldest birth there listed there, but it's just about turn of the century, like 1612s, 1610s. Oh, wow. You know, because the church was established oh, oh, oh. in 1683. Oh, and that's so, so these, long ago. Oh, I know. It's just so freaky. I, you know, <laughs> I grew up in Arizona where one of the churches that my grandfather led in Phoenix was celebrating its 50th anniversary. And it was like, wow, that is so old. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go back there at this this church where I ended up doing a, a year internship. Yeah, it was it was I was in seminary in eighty three, and it was celebrating three hundredth anniversary. Oh my word, that's crazy! And it's like, wow, that is old. And that's part of the thing that intrigued me to learn more about Anabaptist history, Mennonite yeah. history, and kind of made me jump that ship from That's amazing. Presbyterian Baptist to Mennonite. Here you are. But, and here uh, you are. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So ours, we have like, I think close to 1883. So when, when I talk about, if I were to ever talk to those people, I'd be like, hey, yeah, we were founded in 1883, you know, a long time ago. And they would be like, yeah, that's when we turned 200. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were just getting out of our adolescence then. Um, Holy cow. That's crazy. Yeah. But it's, it is a crazy perspective to shift and think, wow, how, you know, and that church still is functioning. It's still ah, that's amazing. They, they had to get a, a new building a number of years ago across the street because they just couldn't fit in there anymore. Oh, um, whoa. And, and you know, it's kind of a cool thing for that thing to maintain, but they keep the original building as part of like a historical uh, legacy. I love and, it. That uh, identifier. So cool. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, speaking of identifiers and legacies, we're still in our Christian nationalism series how did we wander off into this what are we talking about sexton oh there we go yeah oh that's right which is yeah Uh, you know what would a sexton be for a christian nationalist church make sure the flag is prominently displayed yeah that's true good flag yeah that flag yeah yeah Uh. (laughs) and in its proper location right because in third code no other flag. It has to be left to right or something. And you know, it's, what, it's true. Yeah, it has to be it has to be taller than the others and all that kind yeah, of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that's really really funny is that um, Carla is not terribly um, patriotic, or you know, in in that mind of you know, here's the kind of sacred histor- uh, uh American rituals that we have to follow as a country and all that kind of stuff. Right. She's she doesn't get wrapped up in that too much. She's so. like kind of classic a little bit, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when she sees somebody displaying the American flag inappropriately, like it's not supposed to be in the dark, you have to have a light That's on right. it. It's not gotta supposed to be light. in the rain. It's got to be right. covered or taken mm-hmm. down. It's not supposed to be ragged. And so these people have it on the back of their pickups and it's waving all the time. Yeah. Driving, it's just a raggedy mess, you know? She's like, don't they know etiquette? <laughs> if you're gonna do if you're gonna fly that thing you'd better do it right you might as well do it right then at least my goodness and i love funny. it i just it is great that's funny. but uh but don't no, put I think, it on don't put it on your boxers for crying out loud exactly oh i'm so you know i think this is probably the the fourth or fifth time i've said this because we didn't record everything but i think i've already said in our conversation Back before you were born, back when I was a kid or something of that nature. But I remember when during the, the hippie days back in the yes. you know late 60s, early 70s, how it infuriated my dad when he saw hippies wearing clothing that had images of the uh, American flag on it. Oh, my goodness. And how disrespectful that was and how Her. that was just inappropriate. You know, it's not to be worn that way. And it's part of respecting the flag. And then. Over time, you know, that just it's it's on, you know, everything, every potential piece of clothing in <laughs> every conceivable mm-hmm. way, you know, ragged to prominent. Yep. Um, the worst thing in the world is that Fred Meyer in July, you can always go buy the three piece American flag suit <laughs> right, bef- right before uh, Fourth of July. I don't know oh, if you've goodness. seen those. I think I have They're, seen one one of those. Yeah. They are they are unattractive, but but they are only red, white, and blue. So you know exactly what color shoes you need for matching and all that kind of thing. So <laughs> I love it. No need to doubt that. 
So point. yes, sextons, sextons in a in a Christian nationalist church, <laughs> flags that'd be an important thing. Yep. I want. I wonder if another one would have to do with um, making sure all the gas masks are functioning. <laughs> what? Well, in you know, case... in case they, in case, in case you know, some oppo- op- opposition throws, you know, sure. Tear yeah, gas. Yeah, you gotta I be prepared. What. Yeah, so so yeah. maybe uh, the. Communal, but just, uh, <laughs> probably just any any and all tactical gear, you know, flat yeah, I jackets. Say, and... I was gonna start throwing in other gear, yeah, in there, yeah, 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 yeah. So oh. yeah, Sexton could be really busy there. Yeah, that's true. Why a Christian nationalist Sexton? <laughs> oh, and then and then the cleanup, you know, because when I was a Sexton, a big part of my job is cleaning up. Yes. So and picking I, up, um, yeah, all the discarded bulletins and things like that, or just sweeping or what? Vacuuming. Well, I mean that that that's the kind of thing I did. No, but I yeah, would think okay. a Christian nationalist Sexton would be picking up bullet casings. Yeah, you sure. know from from the Bible study they had, which target included, practice plus yeah, target Bible practice Bible study. <laughs> yep, there you go. You probably yes. <laughs> so you know, it, I, there was a conversation I think you had during the pandemic when you were doing your um, uh-huh. Sunday school yep. Sunday schooled. Series. Yes, you you talked with um the producer director for the movie JESUSA, did. didn't you? Yes, I did. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, I rewatched that uh, a week or two ago. Oh my goodness! And yeah, that came out in uh, 2017, 2018, yep. maybe. Yep. And and when I watched it, I thought this is this is this is horrifying. It's disturbing. And then I watched it again, and it was even more disturbing because it's like, this is beginning to go mainstream. Right. Uh, very, very interesting movie to visit after, a, you know, a, a long period of time to go back and look at it. Yeah. No kidding. Kevin Miller. That's the Kevin Miller. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's actually Canadian. So. And I really think that kind of helps as a perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because two things, one, I, I can just see, a Canadian in my mind looking south and just shaking their head. <laughs> well, it gives them a perspective of like, I want to learn more, you know, about this as a outsider. Plus, let's be honest, they're dealing with their own version of this up there too. Well, yeah. I remember when, when there were the, um, uh, the, the trucker That's protests, right. uh, mm-hmm. that, and learning how they were going on in, I think it was up in Ontario was just disappointing. Yep. Um, so, I, I I I do have a ideal ideal idealized image of Canadians being above that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Very they're very <laughs> European, you know, in a sense. Well, yeah. And <laughs> when it comes to civility, I just kind of think they're better than we are. Yeah, they're friendly, good people. So it would be interesting to watch their the still have the same perspective and ideology, yet in a more polite way. How they would <laughs> yeah yeah go about perhaps. doing this yeah so so one of the things we were talking about earlier yes um before we hit record yeah was i was i was describing how i was uh, invited to to preach at a church and uh help a congregation oh, become boy. familiar with what christian nationalism is yeah and if you if you just stop and think about the times that you and I have talked and the guests we've listened to, we've got like six or eight hours of stuff. There's streams of and perspectives and facets. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so and they like, want you what? to talk for twenty minutes. Yeah. So where do you start? 
you know, and how do you, how do you start? And, and here's this, what would be an inspirational Bible verse to use oh. to, to focus your remarks around the good news of Jesus? So it's not all gloom and doom. It's actually a message of hope. I have, well, no, I was going to use the, you know, take, you know, take heart for I have overcome the world, but uh, I feel like Christian oh, nationalists that... have co-opted that one. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is like so many get co-opted. Yeah. Oh boy. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. But I guess, you know, you still do the effort of making it stand for what it, where to, you know, on its own away from that, I guess would be what I would do. Like reclaim I guess, it, yeah. I guess, reclaim, reclaim you know it. what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Reclaim. Yeah. I, you know, that is yeah. that part of our task now? Probably. You know? Yeah. So, so two of our guests, we had, um, Drew straight. Mm-hmm. We, and we also had, uh, Angela Denker and Drew has been running a class, a short course at, um, the Anabaptist Mennonite biblical seminary. Uh, over these last few weeks, and Drew was wise enough to choose as guests Angela Denker, yeah, Pamela Cooper White, uh, as well as himself, yeah, and some others. But you know, those are the people that we talk to, and it's really, it's really makes me feel good that uh, that you know a scholar of his caliber is is trying to copy us, which is kind of <laughs> flattering. Yeah. Love it. But one of the, th- but he had a um, Angela had put together like a thirty minute. Uh, YouTube video for that class. Yes. And she spent a good deal of her time talking about John 18. I think it's 26 through 38, but it's Jesus before Pilate and Pilate saying, you're a king. And he goes, did you figure that one out? Or did somebody tell you that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and then Jesus goes on to say, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world. Amen. (laughs) And that, and that that um, I don't know if it's a conjunction or a preposition, but that of you know aspect you know that it's is it not from this world? Is it not originating in this world? But the very least, it's not like any kingdom you've ever known. That's right. There you go. And it's not about weapons of war. And in fact, you know, he even says right, like over. if it were like that, my they yep. would be right now knocking. They'd be violently trying to prevent yep. this from happening. Yeah, 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 yep. yeah. Yeah, and so and so that was that was that gave me a um, something to hold on to. That's good know, as far as as far as a gospel good news. That's piece. good. That's good. Um, yeah, I like so that. that was that was kind of helpful. That's very helpful. That's a good one. But so what 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 others do you have? Any others that would be like? Oh yeah, that's another good way of looking at it. Yeah. Let's see. Well, so actually, honestly, uh. uh this this is another one of those where we're going to have to do some reclaiming type stuff. But actually, in okay. all honesty, the the entire book of Revelation. Yes. So yeah. um, especially honing in on this is what people get lost on the dominate dominating. You see, even I'm using I'm using even domination <laughs> dominionism. The, oh my gosh. the, uh, the image that gets used throughout as the true expression of Jesus and the grain of Christ is the lamb that was slain, the lamb that right. was slain, the lamb over that and was over slain. and over again, over and over and over. Yeah. 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 So, and, and, when, and, and when he shows up, he's the, 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 you know, he's drenched in blood. Whose blood? His own blood. 
His own blood. His yeah. own blood. <laughs> yep. Yep. So yeah, yeah. I, I my mind instantly turns to the book of Revelation. And uh, an honest, you know, I think you've heard me talk about before, but there's a great book called um Reading Revelation Responsibly. Oh, sounds good. By Michael Gorman. And the full oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so good, man. And it's uh the full the yeah, I gotta get the full subtitle because it's why it's I think of it. Reading Revelation responsibly uncivil worship and witness following the lamb into the new creation so so, so uh, make make sure to to write that down and put it in okay. some link or something like okay. that I'm, I'm not typing any show notes as we go <laughs> okay but so yeah the uncivil, the uncivil part especially because it's essentially the the idea it's working you know this presentation in revelation works against what is the established civic civil religion yeah. you know and yep. if he in fact even has entire i think he's like if this were written today to the church in america it would be about what we've basically you know this military industrial complex nationalism idea that this is we are to use these tools to preserve and protect christian identity here in america and it would work against that completely so what and that that's just a whole interesting area of, of oh, research because yeah. i mean oh, so yeah. bart ehrman ehrman mm-hmm. ehrman yep. Yep, just yep. recently came out with a a book on revelation and uh though i haven't read it uh heard him talk about it and it seems like it's primary um job is to go out there and tell you everything you ever thought you knew about revelation is wrong. <laughs> right. And, and he seems to lean a whole lot more on, uh, gosh, who was it? Was it Athanasius or, mm. uh, one of those early church fathers who said, this does not belong in the Bible. Right. Uh, and, that's, and, and oh, his, that's where he is. That's his. Yeah. Point. Yeah. Oh. Because, because the image it does portray right. of God's action in the world is yep. one of this cleansing violence. That's right. Bloody cleansing and, violence. Yep. And so he doesn't he doesn't really think that it's has its has a it doesn't have the canonicity that others may think it right. should have. Oh yeah. But you know this whole topic of revelation I you you mentioned the book that you had just uh talked about from Gorman mm-hmm. but I've picked up recently American Apocalypse it's the history of um modern evangelicalism and these images of apocalypticism that's in part of, uh, you know, that's fully in, in the heart of American evangelicalism. Oh yeah. And then there was a new one or well, not terribly new. I think it was, no, this one's actually the old one. This one comes before, but this was from um, uh, Boyer, Paul Boyer, who's a historian and it's when time shall be no more. And it's how prophecy belief has shaped American Christian history. So much. And then uh, Scott McKnight just came out with Revelation yeah. for the Rest of Us. And um, that's one that I want to take a look at. And and Michael Gorman has a nice blurb on the back of that book yep. so, you know, yep. for that, as well as Miroslav, Miroslav Wolf, Wolf. It's like, he's awesome. And then Beth Allison Barr, who's doing a lot of, has done a lot of stuff uh, resisting Christian nationalism. Yeah. So that's a, that's a deep well to dig Mm. into there's a lot of good stuff coming out on on apocalypticism and the book of revelation yeah no that's good that's cool yes i think that's important because it does drive right i mean that's the and it is there you know bart ehrman's not 
incorrect and saying like it's easy to get that from there in fact michael gorman addresses that too in the book of like you know hey the reason why we should be doing this responsibly and he means it in two ways one in a way that you can respond you know respond you respond right. to this but also we we should be so careful with this because of the misunderstanding even of the uh imagery can lead to some serious serious problems well it well, leads already to this has. Weird, <laughs> yeah it leads to a strange kind of justification for our actions yeah. um one of the things that i've heard used by christian nationalists is um this idea of jesus is coming back and he's ticked off that's right exactly uh you know he coming went back he, like a prize was, fighter he was here as a lamb when he's coming back he's a fighter yeah. you know yep. he was here compassionate he's coming back he's going to be violent and, angry and it's like you know i i the whole jesus is going to go out there with the sword and slash people up is you know it it's it's the words of his mouth it's the, right. it's the sword of his mouth you know it's this idea that the things that he say is what that's what's going to cut people to the quick, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. And it's just, I think people, because they're inclined, they want violent imagery. They have trouble seeing that there might be something else. That's right. So, yeah, maybe it's time to study Revelation, the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think it would help oh. for sure. Absolutely. Oh. So yes, that, didn't, that doesn't help create a 20-minute sermon on um, <laughs> Christian nationalism. <sighs> no it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> but i think at least referencing the fear that many people attach to you know um the book of revelation the fear of things that are happening because that is right i mean if if you have fear of this is what's going to happen to us if we don't stand up for you know what we believe and protect our identity and and hold up this pure city on a hill that's us, you know, and defend it from the encroaching hordes and masses. I mean, that's oh, well, yeah, you know, you know. Well, that's where the chant "You will not replace us." Yeah, exactly. It speaks to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think so. I, I I think we're on screen sharing. Can you see my screen? Let me take a look. Yes, I can. Okay, so I was going to just show you some of the images that I used in my sermon. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So oh, I love that uh, image, the one you just had there. So what? How, how do you describe this one here? This is Maga Jesus. Jesus, that uh, very stereotypical image you see hanging in a lot of churches. The white, blonde, highlighted, not smiling, not sad, just looking off into the future. But now he's wearing a red hat that says "Make America Great Again." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um and that that one was seen all over the place at uh oh, at yeah. the rallies, you know, at that insurrection. So here's another slide. Um and have you seen have you seen either of those two flags and can you describe them? Yeah, let's see. I think I have seen these before. Let me hit let me make sure I'm in full screen again here. Okay. This is don't tread on me to uh, looks like M16s crossed over the top, uh, over a, a cross. Well, a cross is beneath them. Don't tread on me, American Christian. So, yeah. 
It's like yes. the M16s, the military, the 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 weaponry protecting the cross. And yeah, you know, and one of the things I've had to try and change in my language is, you know, I would say, yeah, the military imagery, but actually, it's militia imagery. Yeah, imagery. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know You're what right. I mean? It's, so yep. it's this independent force with no accountability. Right. That's a good point. Good point. And then the one, a picture above it, I'm not too familiar with this one, but an appeal so, to heaven with yeah. a evergreen tree, pine tree. Which which was the, the myth around it, and I don't know the historical accuracy. The myth was that this was a flag that was used by George Washington to defeat the British. Oh. And the, the phrase, an appeal to heaven, comes out of uh, one of the Psalms. Oh, okay. And sure. this was this was kind of a kind of a rallying flag for George Washington to to lead to victory, and oh, and so God. this has been adopted by charismatic churches, huh? Uh, to to use to fly this flag. Okay. And I didn't I didn't know that, but that 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 kind of a kind of a benign image. Yeah. Has been used. right. Sure. Oh, sure. Pray, pray yeah, to heaven. Pine, yeah. Pine trees are cute, you know. It's yeah, like, evergreen. I guess maybe is there's there's got to be a symbolism behind that, but I suppose just the, um, just the always renew faith, always being renewed or something. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, who knows? I guess it's something. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait. Um, oh no. Or is it the um, the trees that are. Fed Clapping by the their blood hands? Of, <laughs> no, but oh, I was like the the trees fed by the blood of the martyrs or something along those lines. I, you know what, something to learn about. Okay, <laughs> it, if if we if we do have that conversation with Richard Taylor, we'll have to ask him. Hey, what's up with pine trees? That's yeah. one of the areas of his his uh, study. So, oh, the symbolisms and flags and yeah, the, this flag is where I learned about it. it was from his work on gotcha. uh, charismatic okay. revival fury. Yep. So then. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, here's 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 a favorite. Oh, you got another one. Okay. Trump standing in front of that church after having cleared the street of protesters, right. and even the churchyard <laughs> of protesters who were welcomed there by the church. By themselves. the church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With Trump holding the Bible up in front of the sign for the church. Yeah, and it's this use of it's this mixing of religious symbols and yeah. Yep. power flex yep. yep using the the might uh, to clean and clear and no we got this look i'm holding a bible it's all good you're safe yeah church yeah. we're i'm protecting you <laughs> and then below that america first uh these are clansmen but surprisingly with their hoods up so you can and these are and these, are, and these are women also oh yeah oh you're right that's right yeah they are. oh my goodness yeah Ones and they're carrying between them a banner, America first, one God. I can't read it all, but uh, one flag, one, yeah, one, co- one, country, one country, one God, yeah. one country, one flag. Yeah, there you go. Yep. And uh, yeah, so the America first with, movement emerged with out some of, crosses, uh, with crosses on. Yeah, of side. course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. America first was really pushed by Father Coughlin, like the first yeah. uh, mega evangelist radio preacher, you know, America um, first. So. So these are some mm. images that I that I used. I mean, there's a whole bunch more. Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. Also, I think of too, when I think of Christian nationalism, I can't help but think of when I was a kid. We went to a my youth group went to this guy, and he was presenting 
all of these, this history that he did showing that we really are a Christian nation in here. I look, I can show you all the document evidence, letters and drafts and yada, yada, yada. Right. And uh, I can, this is in his name, David Barton. Do you remember that name? Why do I know that name? So David Barton had, I've known him since now I was in youth group, since I was in youth group. So that was like 94, 95, right in there, 96. And his company, his thing was called Wall Builders because he was trying to build a wall around the, (laughs) yes, so. Yeah, and then he right. became somewhat nationally prominent when Glenn Beck had him on his Fox show as his show's resident historian, showing his stuff about this history. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I saw that guy in Idaho Falls with a, as a youth group. He was doing the same presentation. And here's the funny thing. He is not a historian. His, he's got a, a bachelor's degree in like, accounting or something like that. <laughs> like that but anyway um, yeah so i think of that guy and specifically the wall builder part the wall builders like we're creating yeah. a a you know a barrier to protect who we are and what we are and all right you know these things and uh, yeah. we need to have that and then i can't help but think of how the pharisees their literal name means building a wall of protection essentially pharisee is like it's a building a separation or a division or whatever oh yeah to keep pure yep (laughs) yeah i hadn't even i had not even made that connection but yeah that's great yeah 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 so anyway anyway so so i think the answer was how do you do it in 20 minutes and i think the end is like no you don't (laughs) but you you gave it a value i was looking at your slides and your little description off the side i was like yeah that's how I would talk about it. So I guess I'd lay a little groundwork of defining what it is. And then I, you know, just because of what we've been talking about and because you're presenting to a church, I guess I would want to talk a little bit about how we can, in our local, you know, how can we respond to yeah, pastorally yeah. and as a church, you know, what can we? Yeah, yeah. I, I try to finish off with this kind of a more missional thing. How do you have engaging yeah. conversations? You yes. know, where is God yep. already leading in these conversations and how can you, you go there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that's that's a piece of it how to have um, conversations yeah because we've talked a lot about that yeah so um segueing yeah toward our, toward our toward our interview with is saxton colin saxton that's right not a sexton um <laughs> but i mean he could be i mean we're not going to wander off into that territory anymore no no but uh so i've known i've known Colin for a few decades. Oh, I do. I keep calling him Colin. It's Colin. Colin's. You know, I've had that conversation with him. Are you Colin or Colin? And some people say, no, your name, you know, he can't have a name Colin because that's a body part. You know? <laughs> and then, you know, there's a famous general in the United States. He was right. the secretary of state Colin named Powell. General Colin Powell. You know, anyway, so names spelled the same way. Okay. And, and has similar stature, um, you know, and, and sense of acclaim. Uh, Colin Saxton is is right up there uh, in nice. his fame with with uh, <laughs> the former Secretary of State. My but, goodness, um, of course, right there, boom. Well, so so Colin's background he he had been a um, he grew up Quaker, went to uh, Mennonite Seminary, then becomes a Quaker pastor here in Idaho. Then he becomes a Quaker pastor over in Oregon, and then becomes what the Quaker denomination calls 
uh, a superintendent, which is basically okay. you're the pope of the denomination. Oh my goodness! Not really pope. The, <laughs> you know, it's but you're you're the administrative head, kind of the pastor to pastors, and sure, and all. And it was in that capacity that I got to know him. Oh wow! And for for a for a period of time, our congregation was duly affiliated Quaker and and Mennonite, oh, and nice. we had become Carla and I had become uh, Mennonite. And Mennonite, we had become Quaker pastors accidentally. Uh, we had a meeting, and then three weeks later, we get these little cards in the mail and said, "You are a minister in the Northwest Yearly <laughs> Meeting of Friends." It's like, wait, how'd that happen? Wait a minute, I just okay, showed up to a cool. meeting. Oh, All right, that's, awesome. that's fine. Um, but Colin's been a great friend over the years, and one of the thoughts that we talk about it in in the interview in the conversation is, "What is it like to live in a theocracy?" Mm. That's one thought. Um, what the other one is, what happens to these sectarian off the beaten path, not normal church people like Quakers, definitely a minority, not a mainstream congregation or mainline congregation or, or church tradition. Yeah. Similar to, you know, Mennonites or our, our, um, Mennonite cousins, the Amish, you know, it seems like these groups that are further afield from the social norms would be more um kind of immunized against some of these cultural trends like nationalism that's right but sometimes these so. groups feel so isolated that they want to fit in yeah and and so they move into these cultural norms in order to find this kind of acceptance so we talked a little bit about that but the other thing we we spent some time talking about in the second half of the conversation was the event in the mid 1600s during the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, and I believe it was about 15, 10, maybe 12 to 15 years after the Salem witch trials. And there were four Quaker individuals who were convicted and tried for heresy because they were Quakers. They were no longer part of that uh, oh, yeah. uh, Puritan tradition of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Right. And so they were executed. Uh, so they, you know, they killed four Quakers uh, who were basically practicing freedom of religion. Right. And it was out of that Quaker experience that the Massachusetts Bay Colony began to rethink. Maybe, maybe we're being a bit too rash. <laughs> it's a few decades later that um, um, the Quakers come in a larger gathering of folks from England. They come to actually the Pennsylvania colony being led by William Penn. And William Penn is the one who invited the Mennonites to come over and join them in 1683. Uh, and so in many ways, the, 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 the experience with these Quaker martyrs kind of led to the, to that, uh, immigration of Anabaptists uh, into the colonies. Yeah. And it, yeah, so it hit that, that story, the stories kind of fit together in some ways, even though Quakers and Anabaptists are a different history, but they do share similar places. So we kind of have that conversation and um, uh, hopefully it will be enlightening to those who don't know much about Quakers. Uh, and uh, Colin is a amazing uh, a spokesperson for, for that tradition. That is just interesting nope. to me because I would think, you know, part of that background would make me, you know, like think 
folks would say, we need to be leery of any of this because, you know, we've been on that side. But then I also see the flip side of like, you know, we want someone to protect and allow us to be this separate. There's that too. Yeah. 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 So, so when, when we were, when we were part of the, the, um, the yearly meeting and we'd go to their yearly meetings, you know, their annual conference, uh, at one point there was uh, a proposal to speak against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. And which was in keeping with the Quaker pacifist tradition and to, you know, proclaim the Prince of Peace. We're going to do it in our lives, which means speaking the way of peace, finding the third way, you know, all that kind of peace language. And that didn't go over well in the yearly meeting conversation, because a lot of people were saying, well, if we do that, then we might offend our neighbors or we have some military veterans or a part of our church. And if we say it, then, you know, they'll feel like they're not being welcomed or some would say, well, you know, there are just reasons to use violence. And then, you know, the other more traditional Quakers would look askance and go, what? <laughs> what? Right. No, no, that doesn't work that way. No. And during this meeting, an individual who was uh, standing up to speak and share, you know, what they had thought pointed over to, to Carla and me in this in this auditorium over at George Fox uh, um, University and said, can't we be like our Mennonite friends over here <laughs> who aren't afraid to say that they support peace? And, and we kind of like, I don't know if we felt proud or like, uh-oh, do we need to shrink and just kind of hide? Um, but that was this conversation that was going on. We want to fit in and we're going to try and justify a way to fit into right. the prevailing culture That's for right. all these other reasons that sound good, but it's yeah. a, they're being used as reasons to abandon uh, a traditional historic witness as a peace church yep yep Mm, well that's good so this is a shorter conversation uh compared to the other one so we're gonna fit it all into this one right all into this correct yeah it'll be it'll be one episode one complete thought one complete thought. We do we have those? <laughs> we never have a complete thought. So we'll make it. We'll make it. Make an attempt. So here we go. I can live with that. Well, hello. This is Craig with the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast, and today, continuing the conversation around Christian nationalism, uh, I'm talking with a friend who's a friend from for the last 20 years or so we crossed paths uh during that moment in time for about five or six or seven years that uh, our our small congregation was duly affiliated as a Mennonite and a uh, a Quaker congregation and so we'll be talking with Colin Colin Saxton Colin was the superintendent uh, kind of the head honcho pope of the local Quakers when we were there and um I wanted to invite him on because as Quakers and and myself as a Mennonite, we tend to have a sectarian, different worldview and don't always fit into simple categories, uh, you know, of of American Christianity or or Christianity in general. So I thought, oh, it'd be great to have a another um, have a friend who's who shares that kind of off the um, mainline path kind of. Uh, church experience. So, Colin, do you want to uh, introduce yourself and say anything more about who you are and what you do? Sure. 
I claim friendship with you too, and so I'm glad for that. And after I was the superintendent of Northwest Chile Meeting, I went on and was the head of the world office for a branch of Quakers, and so did that for about seven years. And then for the last uh, four years have worked uh, for the Mennonites as well, the Anabaptists uh, through Everence, and currently I'm serving as their stewardship theologian and director of church relations. You know, when you tell me you had the title of stewardship theologian, it's like, well, that's kind of cool. Right. Like, I don't know what a, it means yet. But... Yeah, but it's like, it's not a stewardship director. It sounds like you don't have to worry about spreadsheets and allocating <laughs> funds to different places. You just get to talk about theology. Right. Think about like, the intersection of faith and money. I, I love that because I, I mean, that's kind of what I do when I'm teaching at the different schools. I, I, I'm a professor. However, I have to grade their homework, which, <laughs> which stinks. You get right. to teach without having to do any grading, I suppose. Right. right. <laughs> what a my pleasure. other connection to the Mennonites was I did my master's degree at Eastern years ago. Yes. And you had that opportunity to turn, to make that turn, to take that path. Right. And you chose the other route. The so, other route. The road less traveled. Yeah. The road less traveled? Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. Neither one of us represent <laughs> millions of people in our traditions. No, so we do not. So one of the one of the issues around Christian nationalism that that we've been looking at is part of it has to do with this idea of public faith, and there is a there is a um, definitely there's a strong stream of Christian tradition throughout um, our nation's history, as well as other nations in the world. I mean, the the, the church has always been involved with Europe. I mean, Europe was you know shaped by by Christian ideas. And so I think the 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 Christian experience or the Christian history connected to nations, countries, ethnic groups is an interesting path to look at. I think the challenge is, and it's from my Anabaptist Mennonite background, and I think it fits with with a with a Quaker background, is Sometimes we represent a theological idea that is not in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the one of my experiences, and as one of the early experiences um, we shared together, Colin, was when I was part of a team of consultants working on issues around conflict and challenges within the yearly meeting. And one of the themes that it seemed uh, strong to me was so many of these friends meetings that were beginning to experience conflict or or um, a lack of direction perhaps were a lot of those that had become really more connected with american evangelicalism rather than the heritage of their quaker tradition mm-hmm. and it almost in my mind i always always thinking well dance with the one who brought you you know mm-hmm. and and it was this there was something about the tradition that i thought was healing and important to reconnect with. And I think right now, Christian nationalism kind of fo- offers that, that challenge. I mean, do you, do you hold with the tradition that, um, uh, of, of the, of whatever faith you're a part of Baptist, Anglican, you know, Roman Catholic, or do you f- jump into this larger faith, I guess, or religious idea of Christian nationalism? How do you stay distinct? So that's a long question, a long statement, but, you know, any ideas you have on that kind of jump in? Well, one of the things I read recently is that among people of faith, 50% of of Christians 
say that say explicitly that their life is directed more by their political ideas than their faith convictions. So for the first time ever, it's bumped up above 50%, which is just wild to me, which says we're doing something wrong as a church in terms of understanding what it means to be the people of God or doing discipleship or spiritual formation or whatever it is you want to call it, especially in a culture that seems to me to be incredibly good at at cultivating a sense of nationalism. We wrap everything in the flag. We reinforce a strong sense of national identity over and over again. Um, we have been uh, in, informed or formed by this myth that the, that the government can provide us with, with security and independence. We, we long for those two things in our culture. And so around the time that Trump was elected, I heard somebody talk about how one of the things that was unique about him was that he was this strong man who promised both, you know, um, both security and independence. And so, especially for Christians who are sort of reared in this culture of we need to be devoted to our nation, and it was a nation established by God, that was an easy connection for folks to make. Mm -hmm. And easy for them, I think, to move away from that distinctiveness of whatever their theological tradition was to say, I want that because um, it's, pr it's promising me something that people want. It, it, it just uh, as you describe having that freedom and security going together, it's almost like the conversation with Samuel, where you know the the people of Israel are asking for a king, and he goes, "Well, it, you know, he's wanting to say, well, it's going to cost you, you know, they're going to take your sons and daughters, they're going to take your land and your property, sold." But they're going, <laughs> yeah, and they're going, no, we want that, we want that because it it did seem to promise some level of security, and the freedom to at least, uh, the freedom part was to overtake their uh, the, the, their enemies to 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 expand and to 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 become larger right um so that yeah. that challenge it's still out there mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. how do well how, what what has been your experience with uh folks in the let's stick stick with the quaker con uh, tradition um does it happen among um Quakers that there is this appeal it's an it's an appealing choice to to move in that you can call it trumpian direction or you know looking for a king and it happens to be Saul <laughs> or that idea like we we don't need to be this distinctive people anymore there's there's something more alluring in this other option mm -hmm. and how has that played out and maybe even internationally as you've worked with with uh friends meetings uh, outside of the United States is that sure. a challenge that happens around the world? Yeah. Like the Anabaptist tradition, the theological breadth of Quakerism spans a, a good distance. And so, yeah. you know, the, the folks who come to Quakerism out of a sense of convincement are, are often drawn by things like our commitment to simplicity or nonviolence. And so they may not be drawn into as easily that sort of classic Christian nationalism um, experience. But I think sometimes for people who've been around for a long time, and especially in, in uh, places where they're feeling threatened, where the economy is having a hard time, and when often when we're feeling threatened, um, 
economically or politically, we suddenly notice how people are different from us, right? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we notice skin color, we notice classes, class differences, we notice all different kinds of stuff. And it tends to build this sense of defensiveness, I think, and self protectionism that it, I think becomes, uh, at least for some people, kind of a gateway to this, um, we need a strong America, and a strong America is kind of God's will for the world, at least here in, in our culture. Yeah, it, and that 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 pull can go in different ways. It can go toward a, a nationalistic, which is kind of a theocratic ideal. I mean, it can go in the way of marketing and you know wanting to be the mega church. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, it, there's there's a lot of different things that can pull you out of that. I, I would say the 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 unique the uniqueness of a particular tradition. Yeah. Well, and I think for the, for the last couple of decades, too, I mean, maybe less so in the last few years, but I think there was a stretch of a couple of decades where we, uh, across our denomination, sort of let loose of our denominational identity, because we did think it was a, a marketing win for us. People didn't want to be, um, to be uh, you know, divided by denominational identities. They just wanted to be Christian. And mm -hmm. And part of me says, I get that. And I think there's actually some value in that. But, but the other thing is that it, what it led to was a sense that as Christian people, then we didn't have a clear sense of what is our identity. It was just sort of this nebulous civil religion. And that's, that's I think, where we lost yeah. something. So, so this, this trend that takes place. And the, that, one of the other experiences that that I had was um, one of the one of the books that I had uh, read recently on Christian nationalism was by a fellow named Brad Onishi, who came to faith as a as a teenager in uh, at a friend's church in um, Orange County, and and the experience he had there as he looks back at the trajectory that was being set for him as he developed his faith, shaped his Christian identity, was one that he said, if I would have stayed there and remained a part of that community, I would have been at the insurrection on January 6th, because that's where that congregation was headed. Yeah, yeah. And and it just, as I read that, I went, no, that's not Quakerism. That's mm. not right. Mm. Yeah. But that's part of that Faustian bargain. It's like, maybe we should uh, set aside some of our distinctives and look for this general Christian civic religion kind of thing. Right. You and I pastored in the same area years ago um, in that Southern Idaho area. And when I came there, there was a really large God and country rally that happened. It still happens. It yeah. still happens. Yeah. It's, it was, and it boggled yeah. my mind because I had just come out of seminary at Eastern Mennonite and had actually written part of my master's thesis around this question of, of what does it mean to be a distinct people? And I'd done this case study on flags in the Mennonite church back in, in Virginia, which was a controversy <laughs> at the time. And I, of course, had this yeah. righteous stand where, of course, you would never have a Christian flag in your sanctuary because of all right. the things that it, that it symbolized. So I get, to, I get to Southern Idaho and guess what? There's, a, there's the Christian flag and the American flag in the sanctuary. Right. And it was just after, you know, desert storm had happened and all that sort of stuff. And so there was a strong sense of, of identity with 
you know, the U.S. and political power and militarism and so many military families. Right. And people who had, who risked their lives and, you know, who committed their, themselves to being in the military at great cost, which sometimes I think we peacemakers don't really right. fully appreciate or, or honor. Yeah. 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 And so, so I thought, well, I could, I could immediately be prophetic and cause a problem here. But I thought, how, how do I, and I loved those people. I really loved yeah. that congregation. It's like, how do I work for change here? And so anyway, the, the, the God and Country rally was happening. And one of the elders in our church was really involved in that. And he said, would you be the speaker at the God and Country rally? It's like, <laughs> no, I can't do that. But let's, can we have a conversation back home about what does that mean? What is the yeah. relationship of God and country? And, you know, over the next couple of years, the flags moved out of the sanctuary. And 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 people began to have a different view of it. Yeah. Um, but it took time and it took patience and it took some uh, some humility on everybody's part to especially that, mine, to navigate. And that is the challenge, I think, right now, at least with some of the folks that I've talked to in other churches, is turn off that prophetic voice for a while. And but then what does that pastoral voice sound like? It can still say this is something that is wrong or I can't support, but let's work toward something we can understand together. It it still it still draws the line, but it takes away that prophetic voice, which is kind of that strong proclamation and leaves room for conversation. Right. And and I think right now in our culture, we are we are bound, some are bouncing between two realities of either this fear that paralyzes or this anxiety to do something. And I think especially in, in our kind of traditions, people wrestle with that a lot. And when you get over here to the to the anxiety to do something side, we look at the world and it seems like it's going to pot and we have this concern about justice and racial equality and, and we recognize that people are, are dying and we do need to speak truth sometimes to power. We do need to draw the line and say what's wrong. Um, but sometimes we, we, at least in my mind, we don't think about how do I speak or how do I act or what sort of symbolic gesture works in a way that actually gets a hearing mm -hmm. rather than just leaves mm -hmm. more dead bodies piling up, you know, symbolically. Right, right, yeah. So, well, well, then how do you do that? So you, great question. How do you answer that? How, I mean, what was the process like, you know, for you when you were pastoring and what have you seen that kind of goes through the, those steps? Yeah. I, I wish there were six easy steps to anything, yeah, right. but, and especially <laughs> this, but so let me, let me fast forward to where, where I am right now. I, I, I'm involved in a, in a congregation that's in a politically very divided community and that reality of, of of how do we how do we engage in transformation and change is something that our congregation feels distinctly tend to be very politically active we active we do a lot of protests that sort of stuff and um there was a there was a social issue that happened a number of uh, about a year ago and somebody posted on our google group we need to be out in the streets protesting I'm the former pastor of this church, so I sit in the back and I try to just shut my mouth and be quiet and cheerlead and that sort of stuff because right. I don't want to cause any problems. And I don't know what got into me that one day, 
But on the Google groups, I said, I think that's probably right. I wonder if there's anything else we can do. And it led to this, this very uh, both heated, but also healed, healing conversation about, well, what does that mean? You know, are you saying we shouldn't be involved politically? It's like, no, I'm just asking, what are our other options? And so right. we actually created this group out of that. The elders at the church asked me to create this group and this conversation that we're calling a laboratory in faithfulness, where we meet every month and and to try and it's a group of people who gather and we and we try to share what's what's God calling each of us to do in our own spheres of life to be faithful, to make a difference in our world. Some of it, which may look overtly political and involved in political processes, but others as sort of an alternative outside the system. How are we trying to create change and that sort of stuff? And my role has simply to say, how do we have the spiritual resources, you know, to do that work and not so that's become apathetic or unhope unhopeful of those kinds so of things. So it, it, take, it takes the, the, the situation and rather than getting stuck with that small avenue of involvement, which is political uh, activism, which is is great, it's but it expands it. It sounds like to include spiritual formation, uh, discipleship, or what are the resources of our faith that help us to see things differently? Right, right. Because because part of me was has been just moved by the level of rage in our culture. You know, everybody's ticked off at everybody or something. And I just, and I keep thinking there's room for righteous anger and that sort of stuff. I absolutely agree. But some, sometimes I think, is that really righteous anger or is that just, you know, somebody raging about something? And is that actually redemptive? Exactly. Yeah. So it seems like we're all, we're all caught up into this thing where we're on a hair trigger, just waiting for somebody to to rub us the wrong way so we can blast. And, and it seems like you have to create a buffer for yourself so you're not so reactive. And it sounds like what you're what you're talking about is you've got this laboratory to to, to experiment with that, or at least to to almost spread out the anxiety. So maybe it's maybe it's uh, diluted a little bit through community. Yeah. No, that's actually right. It's, and one of the questions really are as you share in your in your particular situation, you know, what's God asking of you? What do you need from this community to support right. and sustain you? And what do you need from the Holy Spirit to, what, what are the spiritual resources and power to help you move forward in a way that actually looks like faithfulness? Yeah. And it's been interesting to hear people um, talk about stuff. Some of it's very simple, like how do I get along with a family member who's just making me crazy to some really pre pretty creative ways of doing outreach with people in our community who are in need. One of, the, one of the things that I've tried to do, just as I've studied more and more about um, resisting Christian nationalism, I relied heavily on a book called The Psychology of Christian Nationalism by Pamela Cooper-White. Mm -hmm. And she goes through you know, a section of the book where she defines what Christian nationalism is a little bit. Then she spends quite a bit of time as a psychologist talking about different uh, psychological theories and group um, group actions and movements and how that kind of herd mentality develops you know, for among some. But the third part of her book is about 
um, how do you engage these people? Because uh, she she quotes somebody in the middle of the book, and she was on the the first two episodes of this series on Christian nationalism, and I share this quote with her out of her book, and it's somebody she she posed the question, how do you talk to you know a, a Trump Christian? And somebody responded, you don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she, her response was, no, 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 that's not right. You know, we need to have these conversations. We need to find ways to have meaningful engagement. And that's really where the third section of that book focuses is how do we develop these conversations? My, my hunch is that that group that you're describing kind of maybe has some of those interactions. Not everybody's doing the same thing, but they can share their experiences with that group. Yeah, exactly. And we're not all on the same page in terms of political ide right. ideology or theological convictions. And so you but, probably end up doing it among each other as well. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things, one of the first meetings we had, I had a psychologist who was part of the group at the time come in and talk about that third section of the book you just described. I mean, that was kind of his his gift to us. And he, he showed a study that talked about um, the range of perspectives and how, how um, how on a, on a particular range, if, if you're the, if I'm the Trump Christian and you're the progressive, you see me as being way over here, when in fact, I would describe myself as here. And yeah. I do the same with you. And, and what, what the argument is, is that our, the distance between us is, is way smaller than we often imagine. And so we, there are a lot of things that we can talk about if we're willing. Mm -hmm. And part of the yeah. pushback to, of it was from some people, though, was, yeah, but we don't have the time to be kind to those people, right? Kindness is a bad thing. And, and it's like, if it's just kindness for the sake of kindness, okay. But, now, but we're talking about interacting with other human beings whose experience you don't often know nothing about, about how they got there or why they have those convictions. And I'm convinced that one of the biggest things that is a problem for us in having those discussions is I assume I know why you think the way. And, and often I'm totally wrong about that. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, in, in logic or whatever, it's, it's a rhetoric, even it's called the a fallacy of the excluded middle. Mm. I mean, not everything's a binary. There mm -hmm. is this massive space between these positions that can get you know, delineated in a variety of different ways. And I think that's also probably a place where we have fallen victim to culture in some ways. Mm where they maybe I, I, it seems to be a common complaint that we just can't find common ground. A lot of people will say that, but it could be because we haven't turned our minds toward where that common ground might be. Yeah. And, and when I, when I was working with conflicted congregations, you know, there would be the point of conflict, this, this thing of disagreement, whether it was interpersonal or theological or whatever it would be. But, and, and so if that was the only lens through which you viewed the relationship it was either you're for or you're against. But if you kind of step back from that, you'd find places of interaction. You uh, care about the same community. You want the same things for your children. You have um, these other values that you do reinforce in one another. But we get so caught up on that fine point of difference that we don't honor all the other things that are below it that, are, that we do agree on. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a challenging thing with somebody who, you know, so if, if you go in, in our, in our area, if you go to a outdoor uh, 
protest, whatever it is. Um, whether it be, you know, perhaps for school boards or um, housing. People argue issues. about school boards? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up for where you live, but because I, I, I read the news for uh, your your town, <laughs> or at least I have. But um, but in our area, the, there are others who will come to those gatherings, and they're wearing tactical body armor, carrying assault rifles, and it's very difficult to come up to those people and say, just have a genuine conversation. And it's it's how do we find these neutral or non-defensive environments to engage with 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 these folks who you know protesters wearing t-shirts and carrying placards perhaps stake out one position another group you know in tactical gear with assault weapons claims the other position and while i can say there is a fallacy of the excluded middle it makes it very hard to find that space yeah absolutely there was a recent washington or wall street journal article that talked about how they the, the, the difference, the, the topics, the issues that divide, have divided us historically still continue to divide us at basically the same level. Hmm. But what's changed is the amount of hatred we actually have toward each other. But that's wow. grown exp exponentially. So there's something going on that really is at work in saying, beyond those differences, I just can't abide you at all. And I heard somebody else say, just this week, I was watching some interview and I can't for the life of me think who it was, but he was saying that currently in our culture, that rather than having parents, rather than having parents say, you can't marry somebody of that race, the pressure is you can't marry somebody of that political party. And so we're cultivating this at a really young age with, you know, to see that difference as impenetrable, I guess, mm -hmm. maybe. So it's it's not the issue that divides us. It's our response to those who hold that position. Well, or it's at least making uh, it I mean, harder. It, it may divide us, but it makes it harder because it's it's like we're not dealing with the issue. We're just casting out that person and saying no relationship is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, 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 I, I would fear that it moves from I hate your position to I hate people like you to I hate you. Right. Right. I, mean, I think that's the trajectory. Yeah. And so in other cultures, you know, you talked about other cultures. I mean, in after 2008, there was a huge uh, election violence that happened in Kenya because of uh, the way that the, the vote went. And, and tribalism is the thing that divides people mm -hmm. there. I mean, there's this very strong sense of tribalism. And there were people who were killing one another. And there were hundreds of thousands of internally displaced people uh, in in that country and the Quakers who fought, who fought, long had this um, commitment theologically to peacemaking, but didn't really practice it, got really involved and created Friends Church Peace Team and other stuff and just did some amazing work healing hmm. communities. I mean, that was part of their work was bringing people back together and across tribal differences where they had gotten to the place was where I hate you because of your um, you know, your tribal identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and there's, you know, it's long work, it's still going on, but I see some real headway being made. And I just, it's made me think several times, how, 
how do we import something like that into our culture? Exactly. That, yeah. So there, I mean, a term came into existence over the last 20 years um, and you know, the balkanization, right. you know, that, that experience of Southern Europe, uh, Southern Eastern Europe going through that breaking away after the, the Soviet Union dissolved and all these smaller republics and groups and, you know, infighting and separation and smaller and smaller units. And, you know, then they have, you know, wars and, and it goes on. Plus in Africa, you had the, you know, the, the infamous issues in Rwanda and, and you just saw this, these breaking down into smaller and smaller groups. And it's not only some kind of uh, dispassionate disinterest in the other, it's a passionate, passionate, hatred of the other eye color you know the shape of one's nose the name of one's um you know family or you know that that kind of thing and it, it's a it's a worldwide phenomena oh totally and i and, and i think and, oh, go ahead no i was going to say so you you had you you have these you you had this um awareness or this experience uh, from these friends peacemakers who jumped into that divide mm-hmm. Right. What and would so, that look like as, here? Right. Which to me is the question. It's, it's one of the questions that I posed to this laboratory group a couple of times. Because, you know, I look at our congregation, I think we're a really bad social service agency. You know, we don't do stuff as effectively as a social service agency might. We're not a great something else, political action group. We're the church. So what is the unique role of the church in our time and place? And how, because it arises, it seems to me, out of our sense of mission of what is, what is it, what is being asked of the people of God in our culture? At the same time, we're worried about, you know, ending war and hunger and racism and all of the other things that we absolutely need to be involved in. Is there something about the way we do it as being Christ followers that's distinct that might bring that sort of healing edge to what you've just described. I wish I knew what the what it looked like, but I'm pretty convinced it looks different than a way another group might go about it. So before we started recording, we were talking about kind of the, the missional theological idea of the contrast community, which can be an excuse for a community to back out of all of those things mm-hmm. and to just not part not participate. But then you offered up the other idea of not the contrast, but the parallel community. And that seems like that kind of fits into that conversation. Yeah, I, it was an old book I read in, when I was doing my doctoral work. It was um, Confident Witness Changing World or something like that. It was, a, it was a collection of articles, and I think the author was uh, Douglas John Hall. And he, he wrote about hmm. this notion of being a parallel culture. And, and, and it really was the saying that as as the people of God in the world, there are ways where we engage with culture within its systems, within its forms, to try to bear witness, to try to bring change, all those sorts of things. But there are also times where we can't be involved, you know, because of our values, because of our faith commitments, uh, you know, not being involved in the military, serving as conscientious objectors, those sorts of things, standing outside the system, not in order to watch it burn and, and to take no responsibility for it, but to allow for, 
as Walter Brueggemann would say, that sort of prophetic imagination to develop. What are we, what's, what's a whole other third way that we might yeah. be called to intersect um, that's just different? And that, that takes creative energy and it takes time and it takes commitment and resilience. Um, all the things that are hard to come upon when we're too busy, um, we're economically stressed, we're afraid, we're all those kinds of things. Yeah, we're all yeah, yeah, we're all on pins and needles with our anxieties. Yeah. And but that the but just just the way you describe that, it's it's this uh kind of awareness. And you use the word intersect. So how does that intersect? So for instance, I could say, I am opposed to the death penalty. Mm. Therefore, I'm not going to participate with any criminal justice programs. It's all a mess. You know, corporate prisons, it's all for profit, whatever. Rather, there might be opportunity for somebody with those ideas to actually become a part of the conversation to advocate for different ways of criminal justice reform rather than just saying it's too, it, it's, too broken, I'm not going to be a part of it. Right. So it's it's finding ways to intersect. Uh, you know, it might be doing prison vis visitation and that, you know, it might be ways of developing relationships with people who are, you know, guards or whatever it is, but there's ways to intersect creatively. And it can't be, like you said, it's not a formula. You wish you had six points, do this, this, and this, right. but it's that contextual awareness of what's emerging in your community. And how do you put prophetic imagination to those points? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and creating communities of faith that support that kind of activity and action. And instead of demanding maybe that we all do the same thing, we create these, you know, these uh, missional groups that send people out to do the work that uh, the Spirit has called them to do. And then we come back together and find the strength and healing and, and courage and all those other things to to continue that rhythm. Kind of like in Luke 10. Here, do this, and then they all come back and go, you can't believe what we experienced. Yeah, yeah. They all had a positive. Luke just did the good stories. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. There's an addendum that didn't make it in. But, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the other one's like, well, that, I, that, I didn't have that experience. No, <laughs> no, that's they, right. they, they, they threw a hammer at me. <laughs> 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 yeah, and that of course happens, right? That of course yeah. happens. But still, you bring that back to the community and go, well, maybe there's a different way to approach that. <laughs> let's, let's help, let us help you get that hammer out of your head, you know. And so, <laughs> so one, when we were first starting our congregation, we went door to door. Carla and I went door to door. We we knocked on thousands of doors. We'd go to a, a, a part of the subdivision, and you take that side, I'll take this side. I would go through twenty houses, you know, in half an hour. She would get through four because they're all having wonderful conversations. And it's like, oh, it's the time to go. And one time, I knocked on a door, and a woman answered the door, and she was holding a hammer right up near her head, like, I, like she was ready to hit me. And I was like, "Hi, uh, um, we're, we're starting a new church," and and, <laughs> and she just went, "Oh, I already go to a church." And then slammed the door shut. And, wow. And, and it is like, okay. Wow. Yeah. So that's where that image came from. <laughs> I That would have stuck with me too. <laughs> Fortunately, the hammer stayed in her hand and it didn't move. So, but yeah. So you share these, it's the, these stories. And I think in some ways that's just simpler and less formulaic. It's creating this conversation within the communities, which we already 
are Hmong, you know, it's, um, it's, it doesn't even have to be the entire congregation. Um, and, and maybe it doesn't even have to be congregational. There's other community groups that we participate with, and we can even talk about some of these things if we feel like the community or that gathering can have the tolerance, you know, to, to deal with different, different viewpoints. And, and again, it's not to say that we shouldn't be trying to change systems and all that sort of larger mm-hmm. work that some people are especially gifted and called to do, but not everybody. And, and so how do we, because, I, and, and, yeah. and the work on, down below on a grassroots level may be smaller, but it may not be, it may not be less, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So it's it, it can be the work of everyone, but not everybody needs to do the same thing. Gosh, that just sounds theologically rich. I think there's like a whole few chapters in First Corinthians about that. You know, I think twelve, thirteen, or fourteen. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the one of the stories, and I, maybe kind of a, a segue here, a rough segue. One of the other things that um, I mentioned earlier before we were recording, and it was something that was in my mind, is one of the things about Quakerism, as opposed to Anabaptism in North America, specifically the United States, is Quakerism has had had, had a direct confrontation with theocracy. Mm-hmm. And because, because you all had that, I think it paved a way for us to come over about 40 years later, after you had that experience. So around the mid-1600s, Quakers were um, kicked out, whipped, and executed who were part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, mm-hmm. this, this Puritan community that was actually established as a theocratic state. Right. And that, that was their stated intention. And, and there were, I believe, four Quakers who were executed. Mm-hmm. And... And, and that's a part of Christian history in general that I've read. I've read several texts on Christian history in the United States, you know, and that's hard to find. Yeah. I, 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 and, and that's one of the things that concerns me about this idea of nationalism is it is, it is an attempt for a theocracy. What does it do to the, to the ones who are off the beaten path, right? You know, who aren't heart following, you know, aren't singing with the choir. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, le- I mean, it's a legitimate concern. The way some days, especially, you think this could easily go that way, you know. And so Mary Dyer is the woman involved, one of the four who's executed. And and actually, the colony worked really hard to not ex- they didn't want to execute a woman because they knew that was that was bad for business. Or it would it was that before good. or after they burned the witches at Salem? Uh, I think it would have. I th- I don't remember now. I think it was after. <laughs> maybe 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 they learned something with the but. Well, they kicked her out, and mm-hmm. they went to. She and her husband, I think, went to Rhode Island, and then Rhode traveled. Island, yeah, yeah, they went to, then to England, where she actually met up with the Quakers and became a Quaker there. Her husband never did. Came back to Rhode Island, and she felt such a strong urge and conviction. And this certainly is part of the the Quaker uh, DNA that there are times to get in in other people's faces, and she was just so offended and so uh, concerned about this theocracy that was you know, it was insisting that people couldn't have a direct relationship with God and only the clergy right. could, you know, speak truth. And she kept coming, she kept showing up there 
and sort of pushed the issue and they kept sending her away until finally they just were fed up and and she was she was executed and that brought an end to it i mean that, they they changed the rule after that to say this is this has gone off the rails and this has gone too far and we need to wow. there needs to be greater toleration and so you know there are those moments um where certain ones are called to take the most extreme positions of in this case martyr you know she did it she did it out of her faith convictions and and it and it actually turned the corner it sounds like yeah for yeah, I, it, the, for the for the massachusetts bay colony right right they did they, they made it more there was more toleration after that wow so there was some kind of internal restraint following that experience where they went, hey, we crossed a line. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not holding out hope for current history, you know, what's going on to like see that line when they cross it. But yeah. I hope yeah. that still exists with, you know, among among people of conscience. So at least. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that uh, that was that's a that's a story I try to teach my students when we talk about uh, Christian history, because uh, it it does happen here, it has happened here, um, and hopefully it won't again. So Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale doesn't have to be a prologue uh, to the future. <laughs> so, well. I'm going to wrap things up and just say, uh, is there anything else you want to throw in on this topic or what you're looking at, you know, as a, as a stewardship theologian or as a Quaker who hangs out with Anabaptists or just as a person in your community, it, the, the congregation where you fellowship? Yeah. Kind of any final thoughts or remarks? Final, final thoughts. You know, actually raising the, the, the Anabaptist stewardship connection to me is I've said to in several places, if I were a Mennonite pastor, one of the things that I would be touting more than anything else is interval testimony to mutual aid. I just think hmm. that lived out in its fullness, that's something that connects with people. Um, I think there's a hunger for that sort of thing. There's been a huge rise since COVID in the numbers of mutual aid societies that have and I think you all understand this at your core, and especially from a spiritual perspective. So coupling the sense of we want to be involved in change, we want to be involved in generosity, in in um, in ways that are creative, alongside the sense of hopelessness that people feel. I think there's back to intersection. I think there's an intersection there, and if we can form communities. That actually take care of one another in the way that you all have understood and that the book of acts seemed to talk about as as mm, one of the mm -hmm. profound ways that christianity grew early on was through that way in which they helped um, you know, care for one another in practical ways i think that's one of those alternatives um to build community in a divided culture right i mean you think that's about you think about the story in Second Corinthians where, you know, there's this famine and political upheaval in Jerusalem, and it's the, Jews, it's the, it's the Jewish Christians who are starving to death. 
Paul goes to Corinth to talk to Gentile Christians who at that point were sort of being kept out of the church. The Jews are saying, mm-hmm. we don't know if we really want y'all here. I'm not sure you're really welcome. So Paul encourages them to give really generously, to give in a hilarious way is what a cheerful giver means. And to <laughs> kind of overcome this reluctance as a way of building this, uh, as one theologian calls it, a sociological impossibility where these two distinct groups find this commonality, this unity that transcends their diversity. And again, I keep coming back to the, the power of mutual aid as, as something that is maybe one of the avenues for working on that. That is really rich to play with in the imagination. I'm thinking of a statistic I, I read uh, in the Washington Post yesterday. They had a, a lengthy article about the assault rifle. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a very uh, powerful uh, piece of journalism, but one of the statistics was um, one out of twenty people in the United States own an assault rifle. <laughs> and why do people have that? Well, maybe some people like blowing things up, and it's just recreational, maybe. But most of it is a as a narrative of fear. <laughs> if people didn't feel like they were on their own, if there was a mutuality in community, that actually the anxiety of being isolated, having to defend oneself up against everybody, you know, would that make it less appealing to have to defend yourself, you know, in that way? Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it's just that idea of mutuality extending beyond um, is one of those ways to reduce all that anxiety people have that hair triggered, hair triggeredness uh, that, you know, you know, shows itself on social media sometimes. Huh. I love that. <laughs> that was bonus. You didn't even talk yeah, about that. Yeah, there we go. That was good. That's a good bonus. That's a good bo- Thanks. That's what friend that's what friends are for. <laughs> I'm putting my hammer down now. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, thanks uh, uh for being uh on this podcast uh in our continuing conversation around the topic of Christian nationalism. I think you really uh move things in a new direction with some new conversations, some new items for people to think about and even things to actually do kind of implement. And I think it's really helpful because with our conversations, we've been moving from kind of theoretical to more practical, you know, and and moving in that direction. So that's really helpful. And I appreciate that. So thanks for being a friend and a friend. Thanks for the invitation. (laughs) in Asia turn around my friend looking to our nation you can't change the truth it knows no regulation and a handful of senators don't pass legislation and marches alone won't bring integration yet you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction far-out situation we're supposed to be brothers but still there's segregation you can go to the moon spend two weeks in space but when you come home it's the same old place 
Kind of amazing how some of the that's an old song <laughs> uh but there's a line in there is how do we uh hate our neighbor and still say grace something like that all right about this, this kind of duplicity yes and that so much of the song also speaks against segregation and 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 racial right um bias and it's like we're not over it no, yet and in fact it feels like we've gone backwards, backwards. yeah there's definitely uh, ways that oh for sure yeah, so that's a, it was, I heard, I can't remember how I got around to hearing that song, but I was like, oh my gosh, that's still sadly relevant. Yep. So. Yes, it is. Oh my goodness. So speaking of Paul Revere and the Raiders. Yeah, from Idaho. 1971, <laughs> Paul Revere yes. and the Raiders from Idaho. Yeah. But it made me think of the Raiders. Oh which boy. Football. Okay, which made me think of the NFL draft, which yeah. I did not pay attention to at all. But here's one: here's one thing I'm curious about the NFL draft. Yes, what I do understand from the headlines, it was a year for quarterbacks. Yes, three in the top ten were drafted. Yeah. So, one of the things we talked about several months ago was an article in the might have been in the New York Times about how much quarterbacks in college, because of the name, image, and likeness rules, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. are making thirteen million dollars a year to play college football. Did any of these quarterbacks have to accept a pay cut to go to the NFL? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they're definitely making less than 13 million a year. That's for sure. Because <laughs> because now their now their name, image, and likeness is owned by the company by the yeah. That's team. true. That's true. Although they do, you know, they can still have sponsorships, sponsorships, they, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. they are, you know, I'd have to check how they do this in college, right? In the NFL. Because there's specific sponsors for that the NFL is agreed to be with. When a player comes on and they wear anything that's from right. their own, they have to cover it up while they're in yeah. press conferences yeah. and stuff. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, yeah, actually, uh, this is basketball, but somebody like recently, they kept putting their the drink that they're a part of on the oh, really? table and they, they, they kept taking it away. <laughs> because it's not supposed to be there and oh, I so the, that, that company ran that they're like shout out to whoever the player was a drink so good that you know he defies the league rules or you know whatever something like that defies oh. the- <laughs> you know and he was probably fined each time he did that yeah right <laughs> probably more than you and i earn in a oh, year oh probably <laughs> or at least a good chunk of <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't so know funny. But anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, they are definitely making less the just for their pro salary. As uh, I wonder if they show up, how does that? So they're they have a sponsorship that they're in in college because their performance right. is so good. They're well known. They hop into the NFL. Some of them are not going to be starters right away. In fact, they no. may not even perform at all. What happens to those? Are they done once college is over? 
boom, that I wonder if that contract ends and now they got to earn a whole new one. So yeah, because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's incumbent on their um, performance position at that school. Yeah, exactly. Because the way the NIL funds go is they kind of go through this um, kind of middle man holding, you know, kind of warehouse thing of money that goes to the player at the school and these these kind of third party i don't know i don't know what to call it warehouse of cash <laughs> um that's connected with or i think it has a specific connection with 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 the different schools yep but yeah um so what is it like what are going to be the big surprises uh you know who's going to it's too hard it's so hard to predict that stuff but i think um i was surprised there's a guy a defensive lineman named jalen carter that fell all the way to number nine for the eagles and many folks said he was probably the best player overall in the draft but he had some issues he had some stuff that uh you know showed up in the last six months or so kind of like just 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 things that change uh more Not like so much his performance, but the, right. the concerns about what kind of person is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. stuff like that. So that probably and uh, but the uh, yeah, so he could do really well. I'm thinking. Um, uh, I think among the quarterbacks, the first one taken was Bryce Young. The second one taken was C.J. Stroud, and then the third taken at pick number four was Anthony Richardson, and. Boy, I, I don't know how to pick, you know, the teams and the situation depend a lot on what will impact who they are. So I don't know. I'm thinking I actually lean towards Anthony Richardson. I think he's going to be among those three. He'll end up having the best career. So, That's my so where was he? Where was he from? So Anthony Richardson played for Florida quarterback. Okay. And he's got a ton of athletic gifts and talents. I mean, he's very, he's, you know, he's like kind of like, um, kind of like uh, Tebow. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah and sure. he just blossomed he blossomed in the nfl <laughs> sure I mean, he, sure i mean tebow tebow was a fine athlete really excellent um yes yes you know, yes, yes capable yes. baseball player not great but capable <laughs> yeah no i think he should do better than <laughs> but he's in you know it's the situation he's with the colts the colts drafted him at number four um that all depends they've got some good weapons and good stuff going on at the colts that could help him so we'll see all right. All right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So have you been keeping up with baseball? Oh, yes. So specifically my Blue Jays. And yes. they they are one of the best terrible. starts. They're doing great. They have had one of their best starts ever in their. So one of the crazy things history. about. So the American League East is a oh, tough division. Hardest in cause, baseball. Because they are they're They are. <laughs> let's see. Looking at it here. They're five games behind. Uh, and they're right. And they have an but, incredible win record, but their win loss record would put them first in other divisions. Yep. <laughs> uh, including the national league. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So because you got the rays who are as good as start as the blue Jays had the rays. I mean, had they're, they're winning eight out of 10 games. How does, I mean, they had a huge start to yep. the season. So what I hate about this division is that the fact that first of all, it's Red Sox Yankees. They're the two top dogs in it always. And it's the Red right. Sox Yankees. 
And so even here it is a year when they're both off to not that great of a start, but now all of a sudden teams, the Orioles and the Rays are the top two dogs. So it's like the Blue Jays who are consistent, have been, are are always a consistent third best in the, in the division. The year when they're the two teams who are usually one and two are not in the picture. So it should be all there for the Blue Jays to take. The well, Rays it, it, have a record-breaking start it, to the season. One of the things I've always wanted to support are those small market teams. They're not making the cash through broadcasts like New York, Los right. Angeles, yep. Chicago. I mean, they're making so much money on all their different affiliate connections, right? Mm-hmm. But those small market teams like Kansas City, Baltimore, Tampa yep. Bay is still a part of that. Yep. Um, and I would even think, you know, perhaps, you know, Toronto's there to a yeah. certain degree because I'm not sure how things work up as far yeah. as their affiliate connections in you know, up there. Right. But it's cool to see some of these small market teams yes. like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is on top uh, in their division. And, you know, it's like Pittsburgh for a while, it was whether or not they could even support uh, having that many professional teams. Right. So that's, that's kind of cool. I like it when the small market teams, you know, show up and to have both Tampa Bay and Baltimore at the top uh, is pretty cool. Yep. Now, one of the things I'm looking forward to is getting done with grading here pretty soon Ooh, uh, my, for my philosophy and my ethics class so I can spend my days watching baseball. Yes, that's the goal. Get it done so, so you can watch some baseball. I made an impulse purchase on the first day on opening season. I bought the you know the, the MLB package and put Did it on my it? Sling TV so I, I can watch you know, all these baseball games. And only have watched like three so far. It's like, oh, <laughs> you got to get make the I most just, of it, man. I just need to have that on nonstop, just kind of you know, yeah, constant, in the background, you know, flow as you're great. I mean, I, I don't need to listen to another book, audio book, or read <laughs> another, you know, news story or you know about Christian nationalism. I just you're, need to like set that you've aside. You've had your fill. You've had your fill. Had my, now. Yeah, I had my fill. <laughs> you're an expert now on it. So I need to pick up. Uh, well, you know, I would love to to reread a baseball history book that I read years ago. And it was a history of, it was a history of baseball, but it focused on the history of Boston versus New York. Oh, how cool. Just because so, just because those teams are so old and so established. So much. They've got so much history back and forth as well as how, you know, different, you know, the depression, different wars uh, have affected them. You you know, go back to the civil war. I mean, yeah. and, And it has an effect on establishment of baseball. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So maybe That's it's time cool. for that. Time to there change pace. Yeah. Give your <laughs> and mind. See if a anybody break. invites me to preach a sermon on baseball. I don't know. So someday, someday. I, but I, I have done that. Oh yeah. Have you, have, it? have you done baseball sermons, or have you done baseball as an illustration in a sermon? I've, I've done illustration, but I have a friend who did a whole series on baseball that I have always been meaning to go check out because just reading loosely her explanation of what she did. It was like really cool. I was like, okay. Oh, who is that by the way? Uh, Monica. uh, Her name is Monica. Um, Okay. You just had to ask me right now. Okay. She's now in Illinois. Corsaro. 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 Okay. Cause there's another Methodist pastor. Who's a woman who I think has used baseball. uh, Really? Yeah. But I don't want to say her name in case I'm wrong. Cause I don't offend her. Tell me later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) <laughs> but that's cool yeah because who knows maybe it was soccer and i got it all wrong that you know you don't want to get those <laughs> sports confused so oh my word 
Right on. All right. Well, next time. Yes. Yes. We can uh, see what's going oh, on with baseball. Maybe you Catch know up with Emma. the NBA. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. NBA, food, barbecue season winding oh. up. So here's what I did for my barbecue. I went and yes. I, have you ever tried to find a uh, grill cleaner? You know, like they got like easy off oven cleaner for yes. barbecues and grills. Oh yeah. 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 I have seen that. But it's like, yeah. do not let it dry. You have to wipe it off while it's wet. It's like, <laughs> or how does it eat through and eat yeah. all the gunk off? And exactly. And then there was like stainless steel cleaner, which is okay. Fine. I can do that. Don't let it get on painted surfaces. Well, there's a painted hood. Oh my God. Ruin that. It's like, it's hard to find the right grill cleaner. That's cool. Something, something I'm struggling with. You'll find it. I know you will. <laughs> so I'll just probably find a swimming pool filled with some kind of stripper and just dip it in there and then <laughs> pull it back out. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Just That's make the a way vat it. of it. Just a yeah. vat or a tub of it. And then, yeah, there, there we go. go. <laughs> but yeah, definitely heard, grilling season. I've told, I've heard um, it's by, it's by Don, Don power wash or Don power something that actually works really well on a grill. Like, and it has a way it's a sprayer. It's not like yeah. a Don. Blah, blah, blah. It's like a, and uh, I've heard that works. You know, Cliff, uh, Cliff I just, <laughs> why did I almost call you Cliff? Cody, we, we, we are not, we are not, we're, we're a, a audio a podcast. Yeah. And I just, I just really love the demonstrations you had for the different ways of dispensing Don cleaner. It's not a bloop, bloop. It's a. <laughs> it's a psh, psh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I do like the bloop bloop that, that was, that was informative. So that was great, but I really Don... like the trigger. The trigger finger was really helpful. To like. <laughs> yes. Don platinum power wash. That's what it's called. All right. I will have to look at that. See if they've got that at my favorite uh, store. <laughs> right on. All right. And next time we, we can talk about N- NBA and clean grills. There we go. Clean your grills. All right. Get them ready. All right. <laughs> and we'll stop recording now. <laughs>